This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with acclaimed historian Henry Reynolds. Henry brings us some serious truth-telling with his book of the same name, Truth-Telling, History, Sovereignty and the Uluru Statement. He takes us through the historical reality of the British colonisation of Australia and why it is legally, historically and morally clear that Indigenous sovereignty was never ceded. And it's wonderful to be speaking with my next guest. Historian Henry Reynolds is uh, well known for his work on settler and colonisation history and particularly the frontier wars in Australia. And uh, he is an honorary research professor in Aboriginal Studies, Global Cultures and Languages at the University of Tasmania. He's also written numerous books, some of which you would be particularly familiar with. One from 1981 that was particularly significant for historical scholarly research is The Other Side of the Frontier. More recently, there's been The Forgotten War, which you may be familiar with. And there are so many others that I won't read out, but I hope that you can go back through and look through Henry's work. We're going to be talking about Henry's new book today. It is called Truth-Telling, History, Sovereignty and the Uluru Statement. It's been published by New South Publishing. And uh, I welcome Henry now, who I believe is based over in Tasmania. Hi there, Henry. Oh, hi. Yes, I'm in Tasmania. I'm in a, in a little town called Richmond outside Hobart in a very, very old uh, building that used to be a roadside inn. Oh, wow. That's really fascinating. How has uh, your experience been over in Tasmania during this coronavirus pandemic? Has it been a little bit different, presumably, to those on the mainland? Well, well, yes. I mean, Western Australia had the Nullarbor and we had Bass Strait. So uh, apart from a, a bad outbreak when people came off the cruise ship at the very start, we've had no local infections at all. So We've had a very uh, easy time compared, obviously, to people, particularly in in the, in the main or the eastern mainland states, you know, Victoria, New South Wales, and Queensland. Yes, well, it certainly has been a you know very varied experience, but it's great to see that at least some of Australia's had a some sense of normalcy through this pandemic. Henry, before we jump into the content of your book, I did want to set the scene for people to get an understanding of your background as a historian and how you came to the area that you're now so well known for in scholarship, but also very much publicly because your books are very much consumed by a general audience just as much as they are consumed by academia, um, including historians. So I'd love to hear the backstory to that because it does provide some insight insight into this book as well, particularly your connection to Eddie Marbo. Yeah, well, it all really began when I was offered a job. Uh, we, Margaret and I, we'd grown up in Tasmania and gone to university and done some teaching and uh, we, we went away uh, to England as young people did in those days. And while there, just, you know, we'd been there almost two years and I was offered a job in Townsville, you know, which... Uh, uh, it was a very new little university college that it, I had never heard of, and I was offered this job uh, and, you know, accepted and, uh, you know, came back and went to Townsville and found the whole situation quite extraordinary. I mean, there were lots of things about North Queensland which were very different from Hobart. But the most important thing was that it was a community where there was a significant population of both Aborigines and Torres Strait Islanders. And uh, not only was it, uh, was it you know, a, a revelation to be in what was quite clearly a multiracial society, uh, but to observe the relationship between white and black at that time in the 1960s, this was a aspect of Australia that I had knew nothing about, and much of it I found very shocking. I hadn't done much Australian history, but um, you know the world of you know the world of North Queensland of North Australia in those days 
uh, was so profoundly different and in a way very shocking. Uh, And constantly, every day or so, you would see or hear things that built up this idea of a very different Australia. So that was uh, where, where I started. And Margaret, who, of course, later went into politics from North Queensland, as a senator, uh, she was the the act. I mean, I was busy teaching. She was the activist. Got involved in local politics. Uh, set up a kindergarten for Aboriginal and Islander children. Got involved with people like Bobby Sykes, who lived in Townsville. And uh, so I was drawn into the, the middle of this turbulent society. And uh, that was where we met Eddie Marbo because his his children went to the kindergarten. So that was where it began. And um, as I say, I got involved in the, uh, you know, in activism in the day-to-day life of North Queensland before I began the historical research. And that was because I, uh, you know, I was given the job of teaching Australian history. Now, in the first year, I mean, I had two small classes and my students had all come from other parts of North Queensland. Uh, they knew that, you know, race was an ever-present issue far better than I did. And uh, in my teaching, I suddenly realised that there was almost nothing about Aborigines or about frontier conflict in the textbooks that... I was expected to use. In fact, the key textbook of the course, which was a University of Queensland course, literally it was a you know major history of Australia, multi-authored, the most widely used textbook of the period in both universities and senior high schools. There was nothing about Aborigines. They weren't even in the index. Now, this was astonishing. It was astonishing for me but not astonishing, clearly, for most people in the rest of Australia. But uh, I thought, my goodness, I've got to do something about this. How do I teach this aspect of Australia? And so I said, well, I'll have to go and do some research. Now, what I found was that there was almost nothing, particularly about Queensland. There were no books, really, of, of any consequence. So I had to start doing the research myself. And that was the beginning of a very long, uh, you know, crusade, really, to understand the truth about Australian history, the truth which I had been confronted with on a day-to-day basis. Well, it does remind me of an anecdote that you provided at the start of Forgotten War when you were mentioning your first ever postgraduate student, Noel Luz, who, with yourself, were looking at the files from the Port Denison Times dating from the 1860s. And um, this was something that, you know, really struck me was a quote, what both of us found almost immediately was abundant evidence of frontier violence. It was not a case of seeking it out. The evidence spilled unbidden from the contemporary record like blood from an open wound. So I got the impression from that book and from that anecdote that this was evidence that was there to be uncovered and was easily uncovered by someone who was curious enough and willing enough to go out and do that research. Oh, yes. Once you start doing the research on all the newspapers, you know, uh, obviously, and this was the first newspaper in North Queensland, the newspapers, but also the reminiscences of, of pioneers uh, and then eventually the correspondence into and out from government, the uh, reports of letters to the newspapers, it was there in abundance. And it wasn't, it, it, I mean, the, the debate that took place in the public media in colonial society wasn't whether there was violence out there, it was whether it was justified, whether it was excessive, whether it was necessary, whether it was an inescapable, uh, you know, an inescapable fact, inescapable reality of colonial life. Uh, No one case, no one stood up and said, hey, this is all being made up. Everyone knew, everyone who who wanted to 
uh, read, and in a place of the small towns like like Bowen was, I mean, it was a daily reality. They they saw the native police riding out every day on their on their expeditions. So that was, in some ways, that was the shocking thing, and also the the frankness with which people discussed what was happening. Now. This led to a situation where we began doing this work, and I went, you know, in that first 10 years, I went all over Australia. I read government documents in every, you know, every archive. I went to all the major libraries right around the country. I read, you know, I read every frontier newspaper. That is a newspaper that was close to the conflict that was going on from Thursday Island in the far north all the way around to Onslow and those small towns on the Pilbara and uh, Kimberley coast. I read hundreds of years of newspapers. And as I say, the, the, there was no doubt about the violence and also the fact that it was, it was discussed. It did worry people. Uh, there were those who who were profoundly disturbed, who felt a great, uh, you know, a great anxiety about what was happening, about the corrupting uh, influence of this violence, and the casualness of the way the violence was talked about. So uh, when we started, and I mean by by uh, you know early 1970s. There were a small number of us in different parts of uh, Australia, including you know people in Brisbane, who were beginning to uncover this and beginning to write, often theses and articles, but uh, eventually in sort of books that became uh, open to the public. And I mean, the, the, the extraordinary thing was that is the gap between the way in which violence was understood and worried about and talked about in 19th century Australia with what had happened by, you know, the middle of the 20th century in the 60s and 70s. We'd had two generations of people who had grown up being taught an Australian history which basically had left all of this story out. Now, when we suddenly turned up and said, hey, that's, you know, you've left out all this all the blood, all the bloodshed, all the violence, uh, people were very disturbed. Understandably, I understood that. But here were these young, mainly young academics, ratbags, probably communists. You know, this was a time when communism was still the great bogey. Um, These people were, were upsetting our view of our country. Uh, They are corrupting the youth. They are giving them ideas which will make them no longer proud of their own country. And that's why it became part of the culture wars. But as I say, I understand, because what we were... uh, The thing to understand was that for at least two generations, Australians had been given a history that was remarkably deficient in talking about the actual truth of the colonial, you know, the whole colonial project. Absolutely. It's very much true. And even moving into the 90s and the thousands, I know from my experience, even at school, we were taught a very kind of sanitised version of Australian history. So it was only when I got to university and studied Australian history that I was confronted with things like the Mile Creek Massacre, these major events that are just one example of the violence that occurred against Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. You do say in that opening chapter that, quote, I became a leading practitioner of what was to be given the pejorative title, Black Armband History. And this is something that anyone during the Howard years would be very familiar with because we had the constant debate as to whether John Howard should be saying sorry. Kevin Rudd eventually was the Prime Minister to do that. But really the culture wars were seemingly at a great height at that period of the Howard years and uh, certainly broke with the Hawke and Keating years um, in terms of the rhetoric and confronting our past in a more honest way. 
I would love to get into now the content of this book. And before I do, I did want to read out the warning that's in the book because we are going to talk about and reference some material that might be distressing. So any Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people should be aware that this book and obviously then this interview will contain words and descriptions written by non-Indigenous people in the past that might be confronting and would be considered very inappropriate today and it also contains the names of deceased Indigenous people and we won't get into graphic descriptions I don't think but I just wanted to let everyone know that that's what will happen. Now Henry in this book Truth Telling you do publish the Uluru Statement from the Heart in full and you also quote it throughout this book as well and it has a very clear reasoning and it really is what you explore in great depth and uh, with a fantastic analysis which is around the foundations of sovereignty and Australia's or the British Empire's claim of sovereignty and then Australia as a monarchy but there is this contestation this ongoing contestation over sovereignty that may not be as obvious or as direct or clear as the vast majority of Australians are aware. You know, we often take for granted or just assume that it was legal at the time, that this time was a very backwards period where any major imperial power can just go around to discover lands and take what they wanted. Now, that's a very overly simplistic view of the international law and understanding of law at the time, which you do take us through. But you also quote a great passage from the Uluru Statement of the Heart, which I will quote for our purposes. It has never been ceded or extinguished and coexists with the sovereignty of the Crown. We're talking about the connection to the land and sovereignty. How could it be otherwise that peoples possessed a land for 60 millennia and this sacred link disappears from world history in merely the last 200 years? We believe this ancient sovereignty can shine through as a fuller expression of Australia's nationhood. And then you go on to comment that we have here a series of assertions that have the rhetorical power of compacted common sense, but common sense is not the same thing as the common law. So, in terms of that statement and the very eloquent and concise and clear statement around sovereignty in the Uluru Statement from the Heart, what did you take from that and how did that lead you to this book and to the ideas in this book? Well, I mean, it, it, it is most eloquent and it's the final flourish is poetic, metaphorical. And in that sense, people, I think, have not really given enough thought to it. Now, the, the question of a voice to parliament, there were three things. There was the voice to parliament, truth-telling, and the question of sovereignty. Now, uh, sovereignty is the one that is, is hardest to come to terms with because it, there's been very little discussion in Australia about what it means. But if I can respond first to one of your comments. Now, the common view is that all of these things, that is what the British claimed, what the British did, the violence, that all of these things were common at the time. They were they were acceptable way of behaving internationally and that people like me and other historians and other commentators and activists who, who are critical of this are what they call presentists. That is, we are applying our moral judgments and standards back to the past uh, which is anachronistic. Now, what I wanted to do is indeed to come at it from the other side, that is, before the British arrived, what was the understanding and what were the international law? And there was a lot of international law written in the 18th century. So rather than going back from here, I wanted to come forward to the settlement of Australia from the other, other side. And in that way, showing up that what the British did was quite extraordinary. Uh, that is, they claimed in the first instance in 1788, they claimed uh, half of the continent, as we know. And then the other claims in 1824 and 1829, the whole continent they claimed. Now, they made two claims. One, they claimed full sovereignty. That is, they were gaining not sovereignty by by conquest or treaty. It was an original sovereignty because there was no other sovereignty in existence. And they also claimed that all the land, all the real estate, became the property of the crown. 
Now, they were astonishing claims. Now, they could only make sense at the time if you accepted the the view of the British officials in London in 1786 when the planning and the documents were being drawn up, people who had never been in Australia knew almost nothing about it. They decided that the Aboriginal people, the Indigenous people of the Australian continent were either not there, that is, that large parts of the continent were uninhabited, which is an assumption they they did make. And on the other hand, they were also basically so primitive that they had not established right to the land, nor had they did they have any government or customary law. So they didn't exercise any sovereignty. Now in, now, in a terrible way, that is the foundation of Australian law. That is, the Indigenous people over half the continent on the 7th of February, 1788, when the proclamations were read, and that's the, uh, you know, the really the, the official beginning when the, when the legal documents were, were proclaimed, that over half a continent, the people lost their sovereignty over the country because uh, the British had covered them, even though many of those people didn't even see white people for 100 or even 150 years. So it was an astonishing claim. And as I point out, it, it had no justification in the law of the period, of the time. And uh, as, a, as a result, uh, that is still the fundamental building block of our law. And that's why I think it, it simply can't be sustained. Indeed. Well, there are so many examples internationally, as you say, in the 18th century of these foundational texts and foundational understanding of international law and um, how one takes over a kind of area of land. And you go into a number of steps and details around that. I recall when I was reading through this book and you were talking about the fact that international law made this clear that, you know, you couldn't just claim half of a continent if you weren't even occupying the whole half of the continent. Um, And that was just one example of something that I, you know, was unaware of. Yes. Well, I mean, because uh, because the 19th century was a great age of European imperialism, and there were many competing imperial powers, as we know, uh, that they had to, they had to work out rules in order that it wasn't just a free-for-all. And the first step was to uh, you certainly, you know, if, if you could, you could claim to be the first Europeans to have visited and charted and, if you like, discovered a, a part of the world. But that was merely, as, as Cook did, that was merely a claim outward to the other Europeans saying, this is our sphere of influence and we may well uh, follow this up by actual occupation, but it was the actual occupation that mattered. I mean, Tasman had claimed Tasmania in 1642, but because the Dutch never followed up, that simply fell into disuse. But if the British had behaved in the normal way, and remember, the British had been colonising all over the world, but particularly in North America, for 150 years when they got to Australia. Now, in North America... Firstly, they always recognised that the Indians were the landowners. And secondly, they accepted that the Indians, the North American Indians, had a form of sovereignty, internal sovereignty. They had their right to continue their government and their customs. And that if you, uh, if you wanted to establish a settlement, uh, you negotiated with the local people for a place on the coast where you put your settlement. And your claim could only then extend as far as the rivers that ran into the coast at that point. In other words, uh, you could set up pinpoints of settlement, but that didn't give you a claim over vast areas of country you'd never seen and knew nothing about. And that's why the, the claim of the British to Australia was so extraordinary, both in the law as it was and as, as in a way, practice became after it was realised the disasters that had happened in Australia. And so when the uh, British decided to annex New Zealand in 1840, and remember, 
Cook had been in New Zealand and sailed a whole around New Zealand and made a claim on New Zealand before, you know, in 1769, but it took the British 70 years before they annexed New Zealand. But they came with a treaty which recognised that the Māori, that there had to be negotiation about sovereignty uh, and there had to be a recognition of the Māori right to property and their right to self-government. That is, the, the British practice got back onto legitimate, uh, what for the Europeans were legitimate grounds in 1840 with New Zealand. Absolutely. Well, it's a great comparison to make in terms of the fact that, you know, treaty was very much a real consideration and something that was actually enacted and negotiated in New Zealand. And that often comes up as uh, a question as to why Australia didn't engage in that. And I agree. And having read this book now is absolutely astonishing because based on the law that you share and also previous court cases and then latter court cases, it's clear that the legal foundations people were working from were not those that the British who claimed Australia were working from. I want to backtrack a tiny bit because it brings us also to another point in your book. And that was the fact that Captain Cook, when he was doing his expedition, and um, I guess scoping various lands out in 1770, had really looked at parts of Australia, including Gippsland and then up the East Coast, and had decided based on his very brief observations that really there weren't that many native inhabitants in Australia at the time, that there were great features of it uh, in terms of geography that he decided to name. And uh, he also had on that voyage a couple of key people who we do know today, including Joseph Banks, who was um, a botanist. And you quoted an exchange in a particular committee on transportation to the British Commons in May 1785, which was particularly striking and interesting. The committee asked Joseph Banks about his trip on the endeavour with Captain Cook. And he said, in response to the committee who asked, have you any idea of the nature of the government under which they live? And Banks responded, none whatever, nor of their language. An even more pertinent question followed, do you think that 500 men being put on shore there would meet with that obstruction from the natives which might prevent them settling there? Banks replied emphatically, certainly not. From the experience I have had of the natives of another part of the same coast, I'm inclined to believe they would speedily abandon the country to the newcomers. You then go on to yeah, say yeah. when people actually did arrive on the first fleet, it was very immediate, even from the shoreline, um, that what had been reported by Banks and also by Cook to the British was not at all accurate. And I found that primary evidence that you provide of the various key people who landed there and what they discovered in terms of the diversity of nations, the diversity of language, the practices of obviously managing the land on which they were living and the fact that they were not all settled on the coast, that there were so many tribes inland and nations inland who had different practices, who, you know, found food that was not from the ocean, which had been an assumption, um, that there was a great deal of fire and smoke across the land, which showed that level of activity and the, the population numbers were far greater than they expected. So people very early on figured out that what they had been told was wrong. And as you say before, that the assumptions they made were not accurate. And it becomes more and more clear as years go on that there are tribes and nations that have very clear boundaries and clear territories with their own laws and their own languages. And that you in the book really explain how that really is, I guess, a sovereign claim over over certain areas as all these nations would have had and do have. And I wanted to get a sense from you as to how you developed that and understood that from your work in the archives. Well, it, it was indeed, as I point out, many of the many of the erroneous assumptions were overturned within a matter of months. Uh, and you know, Philip was so astonished to see smoke in the Blue Mountains that they they went all the way to find the fire, the remains of the fire, to see if they had been eating fish. Because if they hadn't been, then the whole so much of the 
the underlying assumptions were already proved to be wrong. Uh, they realised that wherever they went, there were new people, that the Aborigines, the locals that they took with them on these expeditions, were entering foreign country, uh, and that there were new languages, that it was a totally different world to what they'd been led to believe. The great problem, the great shame was that there wasn't then, you know, in an attempt to bring the law into line with what they saw as the reality. And it was quite obvious, given that there was this mosaic of small nations, and that is what they need to be called, uh, that they had their own languages and customs. It is obvious by the linguistic evidence that the boundaries had been long-standing that people had maintained their boundaries within their their nations and they defended their boundaries. So that there's every reason to regard them, even in European law of the 19th century, as nations, very small, but nonetheless nations that used law. And one of the great tests was, was law imposed over this territory and was it obeyed? Well, what the Europeans soon discovered, that rather than not having any law, they found that the Aboriginal nations had very strict laws, that they eventually came to think their laws were too strict and people, you know, were punished. So that the whole understanding of the politics of Indigenous Australia had dramatically changed as people got to know more about the country they were living in. Mm. And one of the things that um, also was quite striking around the relations between coloniser and First Nations people was the fact that really you say that the character of the conflict and the rhetoric used was really around warfare and the fact that they were seen as quote-unquote enemies, war and various types of war language were used in documents to describe the conflict that was occurring between First Nations people and the British colonisers. And also the fact that when an Indigenous person was taken into custody, they were really taken as a prisoner of war. They were not treated like a British subject would be. They would not be tried and then potentially convicted and had a punishment, they were taken as you would in a war with the rule of war of of being a prisoner of war, I guess probably without the rules around humanity or being humane to a prisoner of war that we did to some extent, in some cases have in the 20th century. So I was really interested in that discussion, particularly around the Tasmanian experience and how you were talking about patriotism as well on the side of the First Nations people and how they saw themselves as defending their nation and their territory. Yes, absolutely. I mean, it became, the evidence is is best in Tasmania because it was a a very, very, uh, you know, a a very, very intense conflict for about five years, but it was in a very small, uh, you know, a a very small geographical area and it was widely, uh, astonishingly well documented. One, because it was a small area. Two, they had numerous newspapers. But three, it was a open-air prison. So it had to be have a very, very extensive letter-writing bureaucracy. Otherwise, you know, you, it would have been chaotic. So when the war broke out, it was widely documented and discussed. And there's no doubt that the, I mean, the governor and most of his officials were were soldiers. They were soldiers, been soldiers in the Napoleonic Wars. Uh, they recognised it as war. Uh, they were the ones who began to use the term guerrilla war. Now, guerrilla war was an expression, you know, a Spanish expression, meaning a small war, and it was coined about the the Spanish peasantry, you know, guerrilla war against Napoleon's troops. And so they recognised war, and uh, as a result, after the first couple of cases where they had people who had killed Europeans and they tried them, they increasingly did regard them as prisoners of war. Now, at the same time, there was an insurgency of bushranging, very extensive, but the bushrangers were treated as, as criminals. 
And if they were caught, they were chained, they were brought in, they were tried almost immediately, and they were hung. You know, and their heads were cut off. And some of them, the bodies were hung up in, in, in gibbets, you know, on posts. But this is not the way they treated the Aborigines who were brought in. They were indeed treated as, as prisoners of war. And there was serious discussion about this. Uh, and, and it was recognised that, that this was a war. And when the war finally came to an end, and it was a war really of, of just one or two of the major nations, not, not the whole of Tasmania, the governor, Governor Arthur, above all, said these are, these are you know, noble and brave people. And he was the one who said the great error that was made is that we didn't have a treaty. And he advised the British that if you if you if you proceed as you the way you did in Tasmania, there will be endless conflict, and that you must begin with a recognition of their property and buy property from them in one way or another, and there must be a treaty. And that was the advice that he took back to England in 1836 when they were considering the settlement of New Zealand. And I have no doubt that the whole change of course in British policy, which resulted in Waitangi, uh, came as a result of the war in Tasmania. Yeah, and there obviously were consequences, at least in that case, and, and a change of policy and a change in the way that relations were conducted. I wanted to just quote a piece from Arthur that you do mention because I found it interesting that he said this and it's what you've said, but there's also an additional point. On the first occupation of the colony, it was a great oversight that a treaty was not at that time made with the natives and such compensation given to the chiefs as they would have deemed a fair equivalent for what they surrendered. I wanted to ask about that last part about compensation and surrendering territory. Do you think that that was or would be a realistic expectation to be making given that First Nations people defended their territory so strongly and proudly and fiercely? Well, we don't know because it wasn't tried. Mm. Uh, but, um, I mean, no nation, however small, wants to fight till they're all killed. I mean, at some point and this is true all over Australia, the individual nations clearly came to the conclusion that they really had to try and come to terms. Now, they often didn't have much, you know, there wasn't much option, but everywhere the fighting eventually came to an end and uh, there was an accommodation of sorts. But had it been, had it been conducted by government, by government officials, you know, as happened in Canada, for instance, the mounted police for the settlement of the Western Plains of Canada, at the same time as the settlement of North Australia, it was done by treaty making, and the treaties were negotiated by the mounted police. Uh, so that that was another way of doing it, in contrast, obviously, to Australia and in contrast to the Americans on the Western Plains. And so you've laid out and you do lay out in even greater depth in this book the way that Britain had made those assumptions about Australia and the First Nations people who lived there for millennia. They made assumptions that had been revised even in their own writing. They had since taken that advice back to Britain and, as we see, altered the way that dealings were made in New Zealand with the Maori people. But then taking it back to Australia into the 19th century and Australia becoming self-governing colonies and then obviously a federation through the constitution, you go on to say that there has been no official rejection of the way Britain claimed sovereignty over the whole continent in 1788, 1824 and 1829, and that it remains cemented into the foundations of the Australian state. You also show how yeah. subsequent legal cases also draw on these examples in the law from the 18th and 19th century and the fact that it has been upheld, I guess, by subsequent courts within Australia. So I wanted to also understand how when colonies became self-governing and when Australians became, an, uh, I guess, a federation, 
we didn't really change course, did we? And neither did the law in the way that we looked at sovereignty and looked at our First Nations peoples. No, that's right. We, we, we just, as Lionel Murphy said, it was a convenient falsehood. But the Australian courts say we are not able, we can't question the executive power which established the institutions within which we work. We can't go behind that claim of sovereignty in our courts. Now, that, uh, that presents a great difficulty. Now, the interesting thing is, of course, that in the Mabo case, uh, the court did, to an, you know, an amazing degree, it overturned the land law that had been in place for over 200 years. And it said that this was not the way the common law worked in 1788, and that they didn't say it was illegal. They were very careful. They said it was wrongful, wrongful to claim the, the, the Indigenous people didn't have any property rights. So they altered that. And by implication, you see, they recognised the sovereignty because they recognised that there were distinct nations. Uh, they recognised that they had property rights and those property rights continued if they hadn't been extinguished. That in effect, they did exercise law over their territory and in a way were exercising sovereignty. But it is still a jurisprudential mess. And that is why treaty, modern treaty making is so important. Now, modern treaty, people say, oh, you can't do that. Well, you can. And indeed, as I say, the Canadians had a history of treaty making from about 1720 up to nine. For 200 years, they were making treaties. And then they stopped making treaties. I think the last ones were in the 1920s. But they have started again because British Columbia and the whole North had no treaties. And so what they've been doing is negotiating new treaties. So uh, this can be done. And uh, how it's done in Australia is yet to be discussed, whether it is one treaty or two, Aboriginal treaty, Torres Strait Island treaty, or whether there's one overarching treaty and then negotiations with every small nation. I mean, it's a very complex business, and we haven't even started thinking about what might be done. But Canada has showed us that you can indeed, over vast areas of Canada, you can establish a new treaty-making process. Yeah, absolutely. And that is something we've heard you know, calls for, obviously, and the Victorian government seeking to make a treaty in some regard, although as you state and share, it's not that simple. And it, obviously when we had so many different uh, nations, First Nations across Australia with different languages, different customs, it does make things a little bit more complex. But one yes, other... Yes, it does, yes. One other part of that story, when you were going through Eddie Marbo's court case around the Murray Islands, and you were saying that Marbo's legal team didn't seek to question the legitimacy of the annexation of the Murray Islands in 1879, there was a pragmatic reason for that. And as you have already mentioned, that Australian courts have said that we can't rule on the legitimacy of the government that we've been established under. So that does, as you say, leave open treaty. And it also does mean that in terms of legal recourse in a formal sense, that that is something through, I believe, an international legal forum. Yes. I mean, if, if Australia could, if it wanted to, but I'm sure I can't see it happening, um, they could ask for an opinion from the International Court of Justice now, that was done in a comparable situation in the 1970s, if I remember rightly, about the Western Sahara. And it was a conflict whether the Spanish claim of sovereignty over the Western Sahara in 1883 or four or thereabouts was legitimate. And the International Court sat on it and came out, I think, almost uh, with a majority, you know, not just a majority judgment, but overwhelming majority, saying, no, the, the, the Spanish claim wasn't legitimate because they assumed that the people of the Western Sahara didn't exercise sovereignty. It was a terra nullius. It wasn't a terra nullius, so therefore the Spanish claim wasn't legitimate. Now, see, that it, it is, I think, once again, it is the 
the Torres Strait or the Eastern Torres Strait, Murray and Darnley Island, uh, where I think the first claim should indeed be made. There should be a new Murray Island case about sovereignty. It wasn't the British government. It wasn't the great imperial government. It was the Queensland government that made this claim of sovereignty, and I think utterly without legitimacy. And uh, I think that should be taken to court so the issues can be argued out. Because if nothing else, it would be an extremely important way to educate the whole community. Mm, Yeah, it is a really great section. So I hope people can go to it in that chapter and read about that particular situation with the Murray Islands. Just to kind of wrap up the conversation and to talk about some of the contemporary issues that this brings up, I wanted to read out a paragraph that I felt really summarised the situation that we've been discussing and then move from that. You say... In terms of moving forward and and looking at this situation and where sovereignty lies on either side, the only realistic alternative is the proposition that sovereignty, like land ownership, was subverted in a piecemeal fashion over a great many years. If that is the central story, it leaves wide open the alternative view that in many parts of the continent, the momentum of the invasion stalled, leaving Indigenous society still in occupation of its traditional lands and continuing to exercise its ancient sovereignty. Now, ancient sovereignty, as we heard at the start of this conversation, is something that is discussed in the Uluru Statement from the Heart. And it is something that you show and prove in this book has a strong case in terms of the law of the time, not of the law of the current period. So in terms of the implications for that, we've discussed some of those looking at treaty, for example, and other legal avenues. But what are some of the other things that if we accept the fact that Indigenous and ancient sovereignty was not ceded, that it has been maintained and that sovereignty, British sovereignty, was really piecemeal and and was kind of obviously contested in a range of legal ways and highly questionable. What does that mean for Australia in terms of how we conduct ourselves now and how we confront our history, confront our past and recognise the traditional owners of the land who do have sovereignty? Yes. Well, I mean, the interesting thing is that Australia has already done this. I mean, at the very centre of British jurisprudence is the idea that sovereignty is indissoluble. It can't be divided. Now, (laughs) that is exactly what federations do. That is, in 1901, the Constitution divided sovereign powers uh, between the Commonwealth and the states and wrote down the powers. So we we have a great deal of experience of working in a a country, in a nation uh, that has divided sovereignty. And there seems to be no reason whatsoever that we can't further develop that by establishing a right to self-government and self-determination by many of the small nations, although it may well be that they will group together in regions. You know, Torres Strait clearly, uh, Cape York, uh, and the the settlement in Western Australia of the Noongar people, you know, that is the different the different groups of Noongar over the whole of the southwest. I mean, a very large area, larger than many European countries. They have now really signed what is probably the first real treaty, uh, and that is the way forward. It will be negotiated, as I say, with, with uh, in regional groups. But um, uh, as part of that is the right to self-determination within the Australian state. That is basically to make their own laws and to carry out their own internal government, as is common and always has been in the United States, you know, where the Indian nations have internal self-government and they make their own laws. Indeed. I also wanted to, before I let you go, touch on something that has been the subject of great discussion and you yourself have entered this. Given your extensive research on the frontier wars, we have seen the Australian War Memorial be provided huge amounts of funding and that has been greatly contested as to whether that was relevant, given that it could be spent in other places. But 
historians and others are well aware that the Australian War Memorial as it is now does not in any meaningful way recognise the frontier wars in its memorialisation of Australians and people who have fought wars in Australia and outside of Australia. And I just wanted to get your opinion, given what we've discussed, given uh, your research and others' research on frontier violence and the frontier wars, what are your thoughts on how Australia should think about remembering and confronting its past and particularly its violent past? Yes, well, the, the War Memorial, I mean, I think the War Memorial is a lost cause. Um, the extraordinary thing is that no one in federal parliament, you know, no one dares question the War Memorial or says, look, if you want this money, you've got to now uh, consider having a serious acceptance of the frontier wars. They say, oh, no, it's not our business. It's for the National Museum. Well, that's a very odd thing to say. In any way, the National Museum is so limited in space and in finance compared to the War Memorial. But I think uh, now we, we say, well, the War Memorial, I don't think they should be actually trusted, even if there was an instruction. I think we want a, a separate institution, uh, possibly linked to the IATSIS, the Institute of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Studies. There's plenty of space around the uh, in Canberra, and we establish a new, new, new central institution. Uh, and I think that would be a very, very successful and, very, you know, a very, very popular site. And uh, they would then negotiate all over Australia how each of the small nations want their past to be remembered. So I think it needs, uh, I think now, having for a long time thought that the War Memorial should take this under their wing, I think uh, we need a, a totally new institution. And if, as I say, uh, Tony Abbott's government, led by Tony Abbott, has spent $100 million on a museum in France about the fighting on the Western Front. Now, how astonishing. Now, if you can spend $100 million on a museum that most Australians will never see, you can spend at least that much setting up a new museum in Canberra. Mm, I couldn't agree more, Henry. I won't take any more of your valuable time, but I'm so grateful to you for taking us through the detail of your book. Um, there's so much more to it than what we've discussed, but you've really captured what it is about. And I think it's really been so thought provoking for me and I'm sure many others who may or may not have been aware of these issues of sovereignty in the level of detail of which you have really researched and presented here. So thank you so much for your time today and uh, your wonderful advocacy, but from both you and your wife. Okay, well, thank you very much. It was a pleasure to talk to you. It's very nice to talk to someone who's both read the book and understands what it's all about. <laughs> it's my absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Okay, good. Bye-bye. I've been speaking there with acclaimed historian Henry Reynolds, and we were just discussing his new book, Truth Telling, History, Sovereignty and the Uluru Statement, which has been published by New South Publishing. It's out now. You can get it and you absolutely should. And when I read this, I instantly thought that everyone has to read it. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.